Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Apologies in advance if my voice sounds a little bit rough. It's uh, it's a twofold thing. Um, I must have the statehouse pathogen that always goes around this time of the year at the uh, at the session. And on on the plus side, I have not much voice because I was at the uh, Bob Seger concert last night, his farewell tour. My very first concert back in 1980 was Bob Seger, so it was nice to go full circle and oh, turn cool. the page back and see him one final time. Turn the page. Very cool. Um, good stuff. Where we, do can you wanna... turn, we can turn the page to the 59 pages of funding formula legislation that dropped late Thursday afternoon. Yeah, a, How's that for a segue? Yeah. A draft, at least, uh, a draft of what we expect to be the biggest education bill of the session was just released on Thursday night, uh, about 5 p.m. at the end of the Senate Education Committee. And after weeks of anticipation, Kevin, it's here, the bill that would overhaul Idaho's public school funding formula. And we can't really overstate how significant and how important uh, this is. It's three years in the making, and the first version of the first draft was released publicly on Thursday. Um, Right, and and it's... You know, like I say, it's a 59-page bill that uh, I don't think either of us really had a chance to digest yet. It's going to kind of amend, I think, upwards of like 60 pieces of state code that have to be sort of retrofitted to to match around the new formula. So the bill itself is going to be very intricate and it's going to be very complicated. And as we've talked about so many times before, the formula itself is going to be you know, a very complicated piece of, of calculus here as the legislature tries to figure out what to do differently with the formula and how that's going to look. I mean, that's the, that's the debate that's starting right now. Yeah, let's tee this up real quick before we move further into the analysis and sort of the backstory and the pros and the cons. Uh, but as most of our loyal readers and listeners will know, this is the plan uh, to transition Idaho away from the attendance-based funding formula method to an enrollment-based funding method. And that sounds like a minor change and maybe even semantics We're here to tell you it's not. Uh, There's been an interim committee that's been working on this for three years. They developed a final recommendation last November. And since that time, a a group of legislators and state officials have been working to draft this thing. Uh, It made its debut on Thursday, tipping the scales at 59 pages. And what it does is uh, it gets rid of the attendance-based model of funding in favor of an enrollment model of funding. But what we're talking about is a model where the money will follow the student. And so there's a base amount of funding per student. Let's say it's $4,000 to use a nice round number. The proposal's a little higher than that, but let's say it's $4,000 to use a nice round number. Under this plan, $4,000 follows every student. So if a student leaves one school district, $4,000 walks out the door with that student. If a district gets a new student, $4,000 $4,000 comes in the door with that student. In and addition the student to that. And kind of dual enrolled or partially enrolled at a, in a, maybe in a charter for a couple of yep. periods and a, you know, a traditional school for the rest of the day. The, the numbers get divided up. That $4,000 gets divvied up. That's taken it gets into really account. complicated really, really quickly. Yeah, that's taken into account. It takes into account full-time enrollment, student mobility, fractional enrollment, uh, concurrent enrollment. It takes into account those things. There's also different funding weights. Uh, funding incentives or funding extras uh, applied to special ed students, Mm -hmm. uh, students from economically disadvantaged families, gifted and talented students, and English language learners. In addition to that, 
there are proposals for a wealth adjustment for school district and different uh, weights for, depending on if you have a really small, mm -hmm. isolated rural district or even a very large district. And so that's where it gets a little bit complicated. We had seen this brought to life in the form of several spreadsheets that the interim committee played with and that the uh, House and Senate Education Committee sort of took for a test drive earlier this session. But now the bill is out, and the debate really begins at this point, right, Kevin? Yeah, and I think uh, you're getting a sneak preview of, of what the debate is going to look like because you and I have both sat in on education committee hearings. They're really more of informational sessions mm -hmm. that have given the, the members of those committees a chance to look at how the spreadsheet works. I sat in on one on Tuesday a couple of days before the release of the, the draft of the bill, and it was really telling because at one stage... Uh, Carl Crabtree, a senator from Grangeville, from north central Idaho, was talking about a school district in his legislative district, Orofino, which is kind of a poster child yeah. for one of the districts that stands to lose money under the new formula. And the Orofino issue, in a nutshell, is that it's a small district with a relatively large number of at-risk students. Uh, it's the home to the uh, Idaho Youth Challenge Academy, which is an alternative high school for students really from all over the state to come up to, to Pierce to go to this sort of second chance high school. So that skews the numbers of at-risk students in Orofino. And it could be to the tune of a million dollars or more. Right. And, and that's when we talk about these winners and losers. The idea is we're basically taking the same amount of money but dividing it up differently. And so under the latest proposal in November, which is the one that we really have had the time to analyze the most, there were 36 school districts or charters that would actually expect to see their funding levels drop under the new funding formula once these weights and dials were applied and all that. Orofino was one of the biggest losers. And kind of an extreme example because it seems like no matter what is done to tweak the spreadsheet and, you know, cushion Orofino from a budget cut, it seems like it's almost inevitable that they're in in jeopardy of having a funding cut. And that right. was Carl Crabtree's concern as this was talked through. And during that hearing, there was discussion about the whole harmless period, which we've talked about, this three-year period. That's in the bill. That's in the bill. Okay, I saw which that Which is Thursday. in the bill. There was also discussion of, well, if you want to do something different than a hold harmless, where every district and every charter gets at least what they're getting now for a three-year period, you could give everybody a slight uptick in funding for three years, kind of a hold positive was the yep. term that was used. Trouble with that is once the hold positive period ends and you go back in time to where these schools were three years ago. The whiplash effect. It, it becomes an even yeah. bigger hit for Orofino. Instead of maybe a $1.2 million hit, it becomes more like a $1.6 million hit. When that came up, you could kind of see some of the color drain out of the uh, uh, Senator Crabtree's face because he's thinking, you know, my goodness, you know, we could have an even more dire financial situation in the Orofino district. This is, becomes an even harder uh, piece of legislation for for Crabtree to support and go back home and say, you know, here's why I voted for it. So you're starting to see how that debate is going to play out and in the individual legislators and the decisions that they're going to have to make. In this this issue with the funding formula and the losers and uh, the funding losers and, and the districts that have a lot of uh, special ed or special needs students, this is something the consultants and the legislators have not been able to figure out. It's a total rid riddle. Uh, they can't, no matter what they do, other than short of just dumping money into the formula, um, 
they can't figure out where it is, and, and it's a real concern. Obviously, on the other side of the coin, if 36 school districts are losing money, uh, the rest of the school districts, more than 100, would expect their funding levels to stay the same uh, or to increase. But this has really been the thing, one of several things that people have latched onto in terms of concerns about implementing this, right. this formula. Let's try to, you know, shift gears a little bit within mm -hmm. funding formula now, and let's talk about sort of the backstory right. because that's interesting too. The, the process that got us to this point, Clark, you've got a detailed story talking to a couple of the key legislators about the process, who they talked to, who they worked with, how this unfolded, and a sense of maybe how this went from a recommendation from the committee to the draft bill that emerged on Thursday. But what we also found out, and what you wrote about in, in, in detail, is there are divisions that are becoming very apparent within the education community about this legislation. Yep. Let's let's talk about the drafting uh, first, and then we'll get to the division uh, second, and remind me so that we don't forget. But I met this week uh, with Representative Wendy Horman, Republican from Idaho Falls, Senator Lori Din Hartog, Republican from Meridian. These were two of the members of the interim committee that really took on a lot of the responsibilities for working with the Legislative Services Office and their primary bill drafter, uh, Brooke Browerman, to really translate this from a spreadsheet and a recommendation into bill form. And um, they met with folks from the State Department of Education, the State Board of Education. There were five or six other legislators uh, that were involved with this. Senator Mortimer, Speaker of the House Scott Bedke, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Winder. A couple of Democrats were involved. Um, Representative John McCrosty from Garden City, a Democrat, and Senator uh, Janie Ward Engelking, a Democrat from Boise. Both of those, Boise, both of those Democrats uh, actually work as school teachers and, and have background as educators. Um, but what they focused on is taking the recommendation and translating it into this bill. And, and it took months. And, and obviously the end product was this 59-page draft that we saw the other day. And a lot of what they had to do was go through and find everywhere that the old salary-based apportionment law appeared in Idaho code, strike that out, delete it, cut it out, and then replace it with new references to enrollment, new calculations for how enrollment will be counted, um, different things of that nature. There's a lot of technical stuff in the bill. And so you've got this group of legislators who are working on it, working with the Legislative Services Office, putting a draft together. Sometimes they met in small groups, sometimes they met over the phone or one-on-one -on -one or informally. Um, and uh, then, at a certain point after January, when they had kind of the bones of a working draft coming together, they reached out to school officials. Uh, Representative Horman said she spoke to about 14 different superintendents or business managers. Uh, Senator Den Hartog said she spoke to maybe 20, 25 mm -hmm. folks. Uh, Representative Horman is not disclosing the names of the uh, folks from the school districts that she worked with. She said they agreed to provide their time. They're no under no obligation to support the bill, um, but they're not releasing the names of those folks, and so and it's difficult to know uh, who played what role specifically and in terms of the educators. Right, and that's where the plot thickens here because while we don't know who the lawmakers met with in the drafting. We know who they didn't meet with. Right. Because, uh, because I met with them. Because you met with them. Um, <laughs> superintendents and school administrators from really you know, most of the large districts in the Treasure Valley, and here we're talking about West Ada, Boise, Nampa, the three largest districts in the state, 
they're saying that they were never consulted. They were saying that they were cut out of this process. They weren't at the table. They're trying to find out what this legislation looks like, or they've been trying to figure out what this legislation looks like. Um, Boise sent a really rather long and you know far-reaching records request to another school district to try to get uh, to get information that might lead them to be able to glean out or tease out a look at what the funding formula bill would look like. So you've got districts and districts uh, fighting yeah. amongst themselves, and part of the the backlash that's coming from the Treasure Valley isn't uh, as much about the product because, you know, the school officials are trying to figure out what that product looks like. They're really upset about the process, right? It's the process and the philosophy. And I met with eight of these superintendents. It's generally the Southern Idaho uh, Superintendents Conference, but I met with eight of them on Thursday, just a few hours before the bill was introduced. And it is like Don Coberly from Boise and yep. Marianne Reynolds from West Ada. Shalene French from Caldwell, Paula, Paula Keller, Keller from, from Nampa, Nampa, Josh Middleton from Middleton, James Gilbert from Mountain Home. Uh, there may be one or two others that uh, escape me right at the moment. But I met with all of them on Thursday. And they've had concerns since September. They wrote a letter to the interim committee in September and said, hey, we, we have some questions, we have some concerns. And they're not all opposed to moving from attendance to enrollment. That's not necessarily what it is. You know, for some people it might be, but they worry about the career ladder. The career ladder, which mm -hmm. is the five-year-old salary law, they're coming up on its fifth birthday, the salary law that the legislature passed to invest some $250 million over a five-year period in teacher salaries with an aim at helping Idaho recruit and retain teachers. Um, that's been the biggest legislative effort ongoing over the last five years. These superintendents are worried that that would go away uh, if that was run through the existing through the new funding formula. They say that the funding for the, the career ladder provides them transparency when they go to negotiate uh, with their local teachers associations each year for salaries and benefits because it's pretty clear what the state's appropriating and what's going to be available to districts. They said that that's helped with recruitment and retention. It helps negotiations, generally speaking, go a little smoother. So the career ladder is a big piece for them. Even though a lot of these superintendents that I've met with would expect to initially be winners under the new funding formula, the winners and losers aspect concerns them. Uh, they say they're concerned about the education system throughout the state of Idaho, not just the situation next year in their own individual district. They're trying to look at the bigger picture. Uh, and they say, we can't support something, even if it's going to help us, knowing that it's going to help our neighbors down the road or some of our smallest, most remote uh, school districts. That's yeah. a concern. They're also concerned about kind of the transparency of this process yeah. that was undertaken, really uh, headed up at some points by the con paid consultants from Education Commission of the States. Don Cor and this is getting in the weeds a little bit, but if you want to read the story, um, you can follow it there too. But Education Commissions of the States last summer presented about four or so different spreadsheets designed to help bring the funding formula to life and give people ideas about where the money would go and how it would be spent. But the numbers plugged into those formulas changed from month to month or week to week, and it wasn't always clear why. Uh, Don Coberly pointed out at one point it looked like they were using 17, 18 enrollment numbers, which would be smaller alongside 18, 19 funding levels, which would be greater. And he said, well, heck, this isn't even an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Um, we don't even know what we're dealing with here. They wonder about the wealth adjustment, which is kind of a new thing for Idaho schools. Um, 
they, they wonder if that's been explained or how that would work or where the calculations came from. So they have a lot of questions about the philosophy of this. They worry about the career ladder. And they worry about the process. They also say, you know, when we go to our school boards and ask for something, our boards will say, has this been vetted? What do the teachers say? What do parents think? How would this affect students? And I talked to several superintendents, Coberly, Middleton, Gilbert in particular, who said, it doesn't feel like this has been vetted. It doesn't feel like this has the level of buy-in to go forward comfortably where we could embrace this and implement it in a smooth fashion and there's too many unanswered questions and is super, what their perspective and is. And Superintendent Gilbert took it a step further yeah. in the story. I mean, he he compared this, uh, and Gilbert is the, the superintendent from Mountain Home, yes. to, to recap, he compared it to the days of Tom Luna. and. Them is fighting words in the education world. I mean, it Luna is. is still a four-letter word in a lot of education circles. To to say that this is a process that you know is is that toxic to school administrators, that gives you a sense of just how how, you know, how emotional this uh, is becoming to a lot of uh, folks in the education community. So this could be a this could be a really rousing debate. It, it, it is, and it was a deliberate word choice. <clears throat> and by invoking Luna's name and talking about the secrecy of this toxic process, which is the way that James Gilbert framed it, he was really calling back, I think, to Props 1, 2, and 3, mm -hmm. which were the overturned exactly. school reform laws that were called the Luna laws, kind of colloquially at the time. He was really calling back to the Luna laws and the overturned props, which galvanized people all across the state there was division, uh, committee hearings all throughout the legislative sessions, um, a divisive time for education, and really that was sort of healed by both the voter repeal and then the K-12 task force right. that came the, the in its aftermath, course, that came yeah. in its wake. Uh, and so they're saying, you know what, and Coberly told me this yesterday, Boise superintendent, he said, we have the perfect vehicle to get that feedback and that buy-in and it's the new education task force that Governor Brad Little proposed uh, earlier in January. Right. So let's look a little bit quickly uh, and recap and, and look ahead here. Let's look, mm -hmm. talk about the process going forward because it is an unusual process that we've seen. It's they have been slow playing it. Uh, not the traditional legislative process. You saw it play out, Kevin. Let's talk about how this is different and what comes next. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that the draft bill is out right now is unusual because most times, uh, bill sponsors do not release the language of a bill until it is actually run through a committee, until it is actually formally introduced in committee. And that is the legal prerogative of bill sponsors. They don't have to release anything right. until a bill becomes public, uh, until it is publicly you know, given initial approval in a committee. So the fact that the bill is out on the streets is unusual. Next Thursday, February 7th, the Senate and House Education Committees get back together for kind of a listening session to get some feedback on the draft legislation, there isn't even going to be a vote at that hearing on the 7th. When I talked to Dean Mortimer, the Senate Education Chair, Thursday he said it will come back at a later date for an initial introduction for the print hearing. Probably will start in Senate Education, but that date is still uh, uncertain. So, as you say, it's been kind of a slow rollout. And, you know, there have been a lot of questions about transparency in this process. We've raised several of them in the in the podcast. Uh, the kind of the closed uh, focus group meetings back last summer. The, the private nature of the spreadsheets. The long process of trying to get public release of the spreadsheets so people could see how the funding formula might work on the ground. 
in fairness, releasing the bill publicly in this manner, in draft form, is probably at least a step towards uh, letting the public see this, and more importantly, let school officials and let education stakeholders get a look at it. So, so some credit due there. Yeah. But I don't see how that necessarily short circuits the debate. I think we're in for a, a pretty long battle in the, in the state house as this uh, finally does. Uh, start to work through the committees. Hard to handicap where this goes next. It's important to point out that this is a proposal still at this point, that it's a draft bill. In order to implement the new funding formula, it would have to be introduced as a bill and passed into law. So pass both committees, House and Senate Education Committees, pass both floors, House and Senate floor, then be signed into law by Governor Little, or at least avoid um, a veto. So it's a, a process still to go. Hard to handicap it. I can't imagine if the vote were today on the floor that it would pass, but that doesn't mean that's its ultimate fate. Uh, Especially the House Education Committee, where there's a new chair, new vice chair, six new members of that committee, like new members new to the legislature new, they're still coming up to speed. They're still getting the lay of the land, still learning about terms and definitions, uh, how the current budget works. Um, So it's a learning process for them. I don't know that it would pass if it was introduced today or if the vote was called today. But I think that's why we're going through this slow rollout. Bring people up to speed, gather feedback, um, let people review it and and poke holes in it for a little bit. And I fully expect that, you know, this will be amended. I don't think the final language, I don't think the language that we saw Thursday would be the final language 100% totally written into law. Even on Thursday, there was talk that there were going to be changes in the spreadsheet uh, that you know, new enrollment figures are going to be factored yeah. in. There's going to be a new calculation to take account uh, schools, districts, and charters that maybe have more experienced teacher faculty, uh, maybe have more, you know, put more money into teacher salaries because they have uh, more veteran teachers. So the spreadsheet is still a work in progress, which means that the legislation is still a work in progress. So my guess is we'll be talking about this next week. We'll have the listening session, as we talked about, on, on Thursday the 7th. So... This is going to be a weekly topic here on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. And we do expect this will be the biggest education issue of the session that this debate will go on. Senator Mortimer said he expect this to be as big or bigger than the career ladder, which was that 2015 salary yes. law. At least two versions of that bill failed uh, before they eventually won wide su- widespread support to pass it that year. Complicated stuff. Um, it was a late-breaking story on Thursday night, so unfortunately, due to an editing error, um, we didn't get it in this week's newsletter, and not a lot of people have read it yet. But if you want to get caught up, go to the homepage, idahoednews.org. Check out our funding formula story, and that's where we'll have all the updates next week with anything uh, that happens on this bill and, and certainly going forward yeah. uh, as well. But a couple more stories I want to get to this week. Kevin, you had some updates on kind of two different school safety plans, uh, the proposal from Superintendent Ibarra and then the ongoing work with the Office of School Safety and Security. This is another topic um, that's important that's discussed throughout the state. What did you find out and where do we stand? Well, the news that came out of Senate Education on Monday, uh, Brian Arms, who is the head of the division that has been working on school safety inspections. This is the uh, three-year-old Office of School Safety and Security. Their hope is to be done with the first round of building inspections, going into every school building in the state, which is more than 700 buildings in all. They hope to be done by the summer. That's sort of a self-imposed deadline. It's not really a hard deadline, but it may not happen by the summer. It may be more like the fall 
when all of these inspections are done. But some interesting things are starting to emerge, and, and uh, ARMS presented some numbers that uh, were interesting. One that sort of jumped out at me, only 27% of schools in the state that they've inspected so far have an SRO, school, uh, yeah. school resource officer on staff. Um, and that's not just a small town issue, and that was what I found kind of interesting when the committee was looking at it. Troy Roan, who is uh, sitting in for uh, Senator Sheree Buckner-Webb, Troy Roan, who is also a trustee in the Boise School yeah. District, so he, he knows this stuff from, from their experience uh, in the district. He says, you know, Boise has to share resource officers between, you know, between buildings. So it's not just a small town issue of trying to get, um, get school resource officers. Also some interesting numbers, uh, you know, as districts and charters sort of self-report, about a fifth of them have said that they are seeing more instance, instances of bullying in the schools. And cyberbullying is is on the uptick in maybe about a third of the schools. So these are really kind of kind of sobering numbers. Uh, one of the things, obviously, that the uh, the office looks at very closely is what sort of security is in a building and what sort of safeguards are in a building. And what what they found is that so far, sixty five percent of the schools that they've inspected have a secured, controlled front entrance. So you come in the door and you are met with you know some sort of either a sign-in or a yeah. kind of locked entrance that you have to get you know buzzed through. But his concern, and you know, we've seen this when we go on school visits, when we do our, our jobs, sometimes that security is not as tight when you go to a modular building on campus or a, a, a satellite building on campus. And that's his concern is that, you know, we've run into the, this, that, yeah. that, that tight security that you get to the front door, it's just not there when you go elsewhere on the campus. So, yeah. you know. So the, kind of a sense of where we are in terms of some of the on-the-ground inspections. And really what the Office of School Safety and Security is doing right now is, by default, this is our school safety plan because, as we saw again this week, uh, further evidence, uh, Superintendent Ibarra's uh, Keep Idaho Student Safe Plan clearly going no place in the legislature. Got kind of a cursory hearing in House Education this week. And when it came time for... Uh, the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee to look at some supplemental funding requests, money to put into programs for this budget year that ends June 30th. Really no serious discussion, really no serious look at Superintendent Ibarra's proposal to put money into her KISS plan for this current budget year. So clearly that proposal going nowhere. So really the, you know, the state of school safety right now is what's going on in that small division of uh, office, uh, that small office of school safety and security. So what, what they're doing is uh, something we're going to be watching very closely. One point that I want to bring up when you were talking about school safety, because it's something I saw in House Education earlier this week, you talked about the incidents of bullying and cyberbullying that are on the rise in Idaho. One of the ways we know that is because of what's called the Idaho Youth Behavior Survey, mm -hmm. I believe is, is the proper yes. name of that survey. That's something that's administered voluntarily and anonymously every two years. I think they're doing it right now in Idaho schools. Uh, and that's where we get information about bullying and harassment and cyberbullying and drug and alcohol use and carrying a weapon. And so that's a lot of data that's informing our school safety conversation less right now. But I want to point out, when I was in House Education earlier this week, several members of House Education had problems with that youth 
risk behavior survey. Uh, Representatives Ehart and Moon said, why are we asking kids all these personal questions? Why are we overwhelming them with all these questions and why do we need to know this stuff? So, it, and this isn't a state initiative. This right. comes from the CDC. It's been going on for years. It's obviously data that's informing our school safety conversation and giving us insight into some of the trauma that our young people are enduring and putting up with. It's, I, I don't and, know. And, and by the same token, when I was in Senate education on Monday, you know, when Brian Arms talks about school safety, he says, look, we are taking a very holistic look at this. It's not just about locked doors. It's not just about SROs. Because and it's not just about responding to emergency after the fact. They want to be proactive. Right. It's, it's trying to figure out what sort of supports students need, what sort of proactive steps can we take to, you know, to help students through difficult periods and to, you know, to try to you know, prevent a situation from escalating to the unspeakable. Interesting, at the end of his presentation, Lori Den Hartog, uh, Senator Den mm-hmm. Hartog, who voted against the creation of the uh, Office of School Safety and Security three years ago, commended ARMS for taking this holistic look and saying, look, our, our kids need more support than just, you know, looking at, you know, locked doors and, and counting SROs. So I think she realizes that, you know, looking at the big picture is really important. So, you know, how do you know what the big picture is? Well, you need, you need data. Yeah. And, you know, this is not a scientific study. It's a voluntary study, as you say. Voluntary but and anonymous. And, but... It gives you a baseline. It gives you a sense of what are students who are willing to fill out the survey, what are they saying about their lives yeah. and their environment in school. So Anybody you, you can opt out data. of that survey. You, know, you, you, you need something to, to go on rather than just intuition. So, you know, just, you know I'm a data person, yeah. so I'm always going to be uh, defaulting on the side of the more data you get, the better. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. You know, just something, interesting. Just something I noticed that I wanted to point out. House education has been applying a lot of scrutiny all over the place uh, this year. So far in this legislative session, uh, the administrative rules process, in particular graduation requirements, applying a lot of scrutiny, taking a really close look at things. They don't like a lot of things over there. <laughs> questioning almost everything. And so I just wanted to plant that seed that this is something I've observed and let's see if it comes up in the future. Yeah. Uh, we'll make note of that today and see if that comes up in the future. One more topic I want to get to, mastery-based education. Yes. This um, is something Superintendent Ibarra has talked about. Uh, it's also something that the Senate Education Committee had a little bit of a problem with last year. You took a closer look at where we're at with mastery right now, the superintendent's proposal for moving forward, and... Um, yeah. It had kind of an interesting finding, uh, it, it, something that be- the legislature didn't hear. It's become a one-week story, and I didn't expect that. But we talked about this in the podcast last week, uh, that Superintendent Abar really wants to expand this mastery yeah. program. She wants more money. She wants to relieve the – she wants to get rid of the cap on the number of pilot schools, pilot programs for Which mastery. is like 19 or 20 right, right now. Right, right, right. So she wants more schools to – Move away from seat time and experiment with the idea of, of mastery and she moving says, kids through she the She says system. there's 50 schools that want That's in. That's where it gets interesting. But, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you call and check, it may not be 50. Right. And so here's here's the deal. So when Ibarra was before JFAC eight days ago, she said that we have up to 50 school districts that want to to try out mastery. We've she got repeated this waiting that Monday list. And, and, you know, okay, she, and she repeated it on Monday. So... What I did was I went to the State Department of Education and said, okay, let's see the waiting list. And they provided a waiting list, and we published it on Monday. 
And almost immediately the next morning, I got an email from Wendy Moore, who is the superintendent in Genesee, who said, you know, we really aren't looking at this. We're, we're, we're really not interested. And she tried to backtrack and go through her emails going back to 2015 to try to figure out, well, how do we wind up on this list? And she thinks it has to do with some correspondence that she had with SDE, the State Department of Education, in her role as kind of regional head of the Superintendents Association up in, in north and central Idaho, but said, we're really not interested in it. And it's not that she's opposed to mastery. It's her district is really working on one-to-one -one technology. But they're not in the queue list. begging to... They're not in the queue. Yeah. This is not something yeah. that they're pushing for. And she's not alone. I got an email the following day from the principal at West Minico uh, Middle School over in the Magic Valley who said, I don't know how we got on this list. Can you tell me how we got on this list? Because we're really not looking at mastery. So lots of back and forth between me and the State Department of Education about, well, how did you get this list? Why are these folks who say they're really not interested on this list? Uh, long story short, the answer that I'm getting from the State Department of Education is this... Uh, well, they, they dispute that West Minico is not interested. That you know, and it, it, it's in my blog that I posted on Thursday. It, but the bottom line of it all is is that um, one of Abar's spokesmen, Scott Phillips, is saying, "Look, this is an informal cue." That's not what the legislature has told. And, and, and that's my point. That's why. Why are we busting chops about this waiting list? That's if my she would point. have told the legislature, "Hey, this is a, I'm spitballing here. This is ballpark. Maybe we had some questions." She said, "We've got a queue. The market is spoken. The demand is there. Open this thing up." Right. It, because it was never it, couched as part in that of a way. narrative as she is trying to get the legislature to to support an expansion of mastery. So it, it's a it was a fairly deliberate comment that she's made now twice at the state house about uh, this you know, unmet demand, this pent-up demand uh, to go to mastery. So, you know, you, you can't do that in a legislative committee and then, you know, walk back and say, well, it's an informal queue. We've been adding schools along the way. If Genesee isn't interested, we'll take them off the list. You know, so, yeah, that's why it's become a one-week story. So anyway, the list, if you go back to my blog on Monday, you'll see the list that we got from the State Department of Education. Uh, you can see if districts uh, in your neighborhood, uh, schools in your neighborhood, are on this uh, are on this list. And you know, if we hear from other districts, other schools who are saying, "Yeah, we're we're on this list, and we're really we're really enthusiastic. We really want to be part of this." You know, I'll write about that. If we hear from other districts that say, "Hey, wait a minute, what? We're we're on a what list?" If you're yeah. listening and your district, it's a one-week story and yeah. counting. So we may have more in the next few days. Who if knows? you're listening and your district's on the list. Uh, and you want to talk to us about it, reach out over yeah, email or, or on Twitter. If you're not on the list and want to be on the w list, also let us know. But, I mean, Kevin, it goes back to first rule of journalism. If your mom tells you she loves you, check it out. Yeah, and, you know, so we're, we're checking it out. We'll, we'll keep an eye on this mastery uh, list and the mastery issue as it comes back through the legislature because it's a two-pronged issue. It's a question of whether you're going to put more money into mastery. Ibarra wants $1.4 million additional Brad Little is not supporting an increase. He wants to just leave the budget as is rather than double it. And the question of lifting the cap. That's a policy bill that will go through the education committees. And as you said, Senate education rejected the idea a year ago. So a lot to watch for in mastery, not just, you know, keeping tabs on the list. I feel like Santa Claus here, but, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll check the list twice or, or thrice or however many times we have to. But we're also going to keep an eye on the 
the budget and the policy end of, of Master. It's a big deal. All right. That was a full week. Real quick oh, before yeah. we go, I want to give a shout out to our East Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, uh, who is putting in a ton of work into investigating uh, this charter school situation out of East Idaho. Another couple of big stories this week, likely another big story coming next week. Right. The Charter School Commission is going to Blackfoot next week to look into this issue. It's been under investigation at the state level now for a while, so the commission sounds like it's a fact-finding mission for them to go to the schools to try to figure out some of the financials that Devin has been writing about and doing some really... Devin, really hard-hitting report. Devin has been pouring his heart and soul into this project uh, in a way that I haven't seen any other journalist doing it, and it's an important story. It's one of the most important stories in the state of Idaho right now, and Devin is all over it, so shout-out to Devin. Uh, continue to follow the homepage at idahoednews.org uh, for the latest. We do expect an update, perhaps late next week, uh, perhaps sooner, uh, but Devin's all over it, so thank you, Devin. Get some sleep and have some fun this weekend. Uh, anyways, I think that about wraps it all up. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the Extra Credit Podcast. We always have a lot of fun breaking down this complicated intersection of politics and policy in the education realm. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.